The Warning Woods presents The 2023 Halloween Special This episode is only one part of a five-part series. Be sure to listen to each episode in order. This story will reach its dramatic conclusion at midnight on October 31st, Halloween. But if you don't want to wait, it's available in paperback and ebook from Amazon.com. So without further ado, let's travel to Prouty, Indiana. This is The Owl. Krista hated running. Of course, she would never tell her audience that. It certainly wasn't something her athleisure wear sponsors would want to hear from her. Krista was supposed to love running, love being outdoors, love the challenge of a good nature trail. In truth, Krista wanted to be in a gym, under a barbell, or on the hack squat machine. Weight training was the brand of fitness she really loved, but it was October 2020 and all the gyms were still closed thanks to the capital P pandemic. When it didn't seem like the gyms were going to reopen anytime soon, Krista had to switch gears. Her popular fitness profile had begun to wane as she struggled to generate fresh, at-home workouts and fit tips. Desperation led her outdoors. She was able to fool her audience into believing she actually loved running outside through woods and along streams. She couldn't deny the great lighting either. Her audience actually expanded after the pivot, and new brands took notice. Krista now ran on a slim path down at the base of a slope somewhere in northern Indiana. Since she lived in downtown South Bend, she had to drive out to nowhere places like this to shoot content. She had packed a few tops and a handful of hairbands and scrunchies to change out her look so she could use the videos over multiple days. All she had to do was run until she worked up a believable sweat shoot a few videos of herself quoting the Dalai Lama or whatever, and she could go home to her husband. He was home streaming video games and making almost double what she made, but she tried not to resent him for it. Krista could taste sweat in the corner of her mouth and guessed her face was glistening enough for the camera. She thought about something encouraging and inspirational to say while taking a few selfies, careful to catch the logos on her clothes in every shot. Her thoughts were interrupted by a large crashing sound above her. For a terrible second, she thought a tree might fall on top of her. She huddled into herself and ran off the trail to stand next to a sturdy-looking trunk for cover, then looked up to see what had made the noise. She saw nothing but crisp yellow leaves up there. Krista removed her earbuds, even though they weren't playing any music, and listened intently. Maybe it was a squirrel jumping between two branches? No, it had been far too loud. If an animal had made the sound, it must have been at least as big as her. So why couldn't she see it? Where had it gone? A branch straight above her groaned, protesting some great weight which sounded like it might snap it. Krista could almost feel the strained vibrations in the tree's trunk as it struggled to hold whatever was up there. She stepped back from the tree, searching its branches, but still... She didn't see. Then it moved. Its leathery brown wings had blended with the branches above perfectly. 
She only saw the thing now because it started creeping out away from the trunk. It had a round, flat face with two small, black eyes spread wide apart above narrow, angled nostril slits and no mouth that she could see. She only saw the full face briefly between leaves, but the almond-shaped eyes were trained on her the whole time. Krista tried to scream, but her lungs were empty. She was hyperventilating. Her phone was still in her hand with the camera open. She raised it to take a video of the grotesque creature in the tree above, but before she pressed record, she noticed the creature's nostrils pulsating. It was smelling her. The smell of her sweat lit up its eyes, making them look excited and ravenous. It cocked its head to one side curiously. It was holding on to the branches with velociraptor talons on its feet and smaller claws at the ends of its fingers at the crooks of its wings. It shifted its legs to balance as it let go with its hands and spread its wings wide enough to block out the mid-morning sun. Then it launched itself up through the treetops into the blue sky above and out of sight. Krista ran. Her feet pounded and crunched on the dry leaves covering the trail. She didn't know what the thing she just saw could have been. An alien? A dinosaur? But she recognized the look it had given her. It was cold, predatory, hungry. She heard its great wings beat once above the trees. She ran harder, fueled by numbing adrenaline. She had been almost three miles from her car, from safety. She looked up the slope and saw the roof of a house up there. If she could make it up that steep hill, maybe someone would let her in and save her from the winged pursuer. Krista used her momentum to get 10 or 15 feet up the slope, not even a quarter of the way, before gravity forced her to slow. She grabbed hold of a skinny tree growing out of the side of the hill to keep herself from falling as she found firm footing. Her shoes slipped on the fallen leaves blanketing the slope. It was nearly impossible to gain any hold on the ground. Instead, she pulled herself from tree to bush to bush to tree in a slow ascent to safety. The big crashing noise came again, but this time Krista didn't look up. She stayed focused on her task, escape. There was nothing she could do about the monster. She could only control herself. She could only press onward and upward. She was halfway up the slope now, halfway to the house, halfway to safety. It landed heavily behind her. One beat of its terrible wings generated a gust which knocked Krista off balance. One of her shoes slipped and her legs gave out. She fell onto her side, now only holding herself up with one hand firmly enlaced in the dead branches of a shrub, her sweaty grip on the tiny plant loosening. The creature, the monster climbed up the slope toward her, using its wings as forelegs. As it came closer, its body split open. A cavernous, vertical maw appeared there, lined with hundreds of fleshy red teeth. With a powerful, decisive lunge, the beast cleared the distance between them and landed on top of Krista, just as her grip gave out. Andrew Laxton went for a walk each and every morning. First, he zigzagged down the slope behind his house. Then he strolled through the woods for a mile or so before turning back. There was an unofficial, semi-maintained path back there, 
which probably only still existed because people like Andy would walk through and kick away the leaves and flatten the dirt. Andy loved living in a town surrounded by so much wilderness. Prouty felt like a footprint God left behind while wandering through northern Indiana's forests, and Andy's house was situated right on the edge of that footprint. It gave him enough space to isolate himself when he wanted, but also allowed him to partake in the lovely community. Prouty was the type of town where everyone knew you, even if you didn't know them. Word of newcomers spread quickly, particularly when a journalist from Gary moved to town to start an independent career. This story belonged to Andy. During the summer, he quit his less-than-lucrative job writing for the Gary Gazette and moved away to try developing an independent platform. With the pandemic shutting people inside, Andy had found he was conducting most of his interviews virtually or over email anyway. Why not do so from a picturesque location and in service of the issues he personally cared about? People around town probably thought he was quiet, but he could summon some charisma when he had to. And he had often been told he looked just like Edward Norton, the actor. And if Ed could build a career off his talent and decent looks, why couldn't Andy? Since moving, Andy had failed to gain much traction online. He knew what he wanted to write about. Labor laws, the growing housing crisis, the need to uplift neglected communities, etc. He had even conducted a few interviews with some city council members, a couple of mayors across the state, and even the lieutenant governor. The recorded calls had been uninformative and basically just gave Andy's interviewees a chance to rehearse their talking points. Andy had published some of them anyway, but they received very little attention. He found it difficult to push too hard during a virtual meeting. Whenever he touched on something his subjects didn't want to address, or tried prying beneath their surface-level answers, he found they quickly found some reason to end the call. Andy decided to try writing again. The problem was deciding what to write. Any nut job can string some thoughts together and call it an article, but how could he get some attention on his work? Andy knew he was a good writer, but did he have the credibility to convince readers that his arguments held water? No, not yet. He needed an issue, something concrete he could highlight and offer practical solutions for. That would be his ticket to the public discourse. A good article, a solid video breakdown, maybe an appearance or two on some podcasts. That could get things going. During his morning walk on October 15th, 2020, such an issue nearly killed him. Andy hated how late the sun rose in October. He always woke up at 5.30, whether he set an alarm or not, and he always stuck to the same routine each day. A cup of coffee and a scroll through his news aggregator, a trip to the bathroom, then his morning mile. The walk back sometimes felt like two miles. Andy had to go back up that steep slope behind his house if he wanted to get home. Some mornings, he wasn't sure he wanted it bad enough. The delayed autumn sunrise meant he had to do all of this in the dark, and that, most days, the air was still frigid with the biting nighttime chill. October 15th was no exception. He had put on a warm coat to shield himself from the cold, but after his walk it felt like a personal sauna. Andy stared up from the bottom of the slope and questioned whether to return home or walk along the gully and see where else he might end up. It was a silly game he played five out of seven days a week. He always knew he would choose to go up in the end, but for a few minutes it was fun to wonder. While taking a swig from his water bottle, Andy heard a crashing sound above him. He searched the slope, expecting to see a deer scampering away. When he saw nothing, 
He shrugged and started the long climb up. What had made the sound would have broken his neck if he'd waited another second to move. The heavy, gray object fell from the treetops and crashed right where Andy had been standing a moment before. The thing which had nearly crushed him looked like a man-sized cocoon with thousands of long fibers wrapped around it. It was made of something like hardened clay. It lay about as long as Andy stood tall, probably between five and a half to six feet by Andy's estimation. The gray mud shell had cracked on impact and split apart. Andy detected a toxic stench leaking from it. He had never seen anything like the cocoon before, but the stench was familiar. It signaled death. Feeling curious and wanting to make sure some kind of alien hadn't just crash-landed behind his house, Andy slid down toward the cocoon. Up close, he used the flashlight on his iPhone to see the fibers varied in color and size. Andy examined the fibers carefully, thinking they might provide a clue as to what type of animal created this monstrosity. Most of them had bright colors, which he had never observed in nature. Hot pink, neon green, baby blue. He plucked at one and found it stretched like elastic. Was it elastic? Whatever it was, most of the fibers were clearly made of something synthetic. Yet, other strands were closer to natural colors and snapped when he pulled at them. They appeared to be real hair. Andy supposed some of the hairs could have come from an animal, but not all. He didn't know of any blonde animals with brown roots. He looked into the canopy above him and wondered what could have put such a gigantic object up there, and why. Perhaps a colony of insects had constructed it slowly, like a beehive or a wasp nest. The muddy substance did sort of look like a hardier version of the paper wasps produced to build their homes. Maybe this was some emerging species of bug that collected fibers to strengthen its nest? It could be, Andy thought hopefully. It really could be. Feeling somewhat less endangered by the strange object now, Andy crouched by the crack in the object's side. He worried for a second that the supposed nest's residents might fly out and attack him, but decided they would have done so already if any were still alive. He couldn't hear anything moving inside. He could only smell that awful, deathly odor. With the hairs and fibers keeping the two halves together, Andy had to force the crack apart with more effort than he had expected. The thing, whatever it was, was wrapped tight. Andy congratulated himself for the forethought to bring a pocket knife with him. He made a habit of always carrying it when going into the woods. He cut until he could pry the crack open. The air which escaped the cocoon-slash-nest thing was warm and the smell became nearly unbearable. With one hand, Andy held the crack open, and with the other, he shone his iPhone's light into the grotesque thing. Through the opening, with a stretched web of fibers on either side, Andy saw a long, white bone just inside. This sight, plus the stench, made him wretch. He fell back and allowed the thing to close up, but he did not let himself puke. Not yet. He opened the crack once more and waved his light across the skeleton, wanting only to know one thing. Had it belonged to a human? The body was spread apart, with its arms out to the sides and its legs spread eagle. There was absolutely no tissue left on the bones. Andy assumed the ligaments holding the skeleton together were all that was left besides the bones themselves. 
Some kind of liquid evenly coated the bones like wet resin. Andy couldn't deny how human the fingers and toes looked, but he wasn't willing to accept that he was looking at a dead person until he could see the skull. That would tell him definitively. Until then, he could lie to himself and say it was, maybe, a bear. He couldn't see the skull because it had been enveloped in a saturated, muddy version of the paper stuff. Andy wondered if, given more time, the whole skeleton would have been consumed the same way. He set down his phone, grabbed a stick, and started prodding blindly at the sticky substance, trying to peel it away. He didn't think until later that if the skeleton was human, he shouldn't have disturbed it. In the moment, his curiosity got the better of him. The grotesque sensation of the skull turning at the end of his stick brought Andy to the verge of puking again, but he stayed strong. After a good amount of poking the skull, he pulled out the stick and held his light up to the crack once more. He had removed much of the gray coating, but had inadvertently turned the skull away from himself. He carefully put his whole arm inside the strange coffin so as to hold it open with his shoulder while holding his phone. Then he picked up the stick again. He held his breath against the putrid air as he clawed at the skull with the stick. It turned slightly with a squelch, then fell back. He turned it again, this time having hooked one of the eye sockets with a nub on the stick. The round skull turned all the way over, and its obviously human jaw dropped open as if screaming at Andy for disturbing its rest. Andy swiftly crawled a few feet away before hurling his coffee all over the duff. It didn't take him long to empty himself. He was glad he hadn't had breakfast yet. Once his innards quit spasming, he looked into the trees, fearfully questioning what might be lurking up there. He still couldn't rule out some type of insect, but now he had to figure out what could have taken a grown person up there. If it was indeed an insect, it must have been something prehistoric or mutant. Andy did the right thing as a good citizen next and called the local police. Prouty just had one cop patrolling at a time, and they were still usually bored. There were four officers in total, if you included Chief Bradley Gilbert, who worked strictly from nine to five and almost never left his office. While he waited for whoever was on duty to show up, Andy began taking pictures of the hideous sarcophagus. He pulled his shirt over his nose as he opened the cocoon once more to photograph the skeleton inside. The hair-curling stench wasn't just that of death alone. Maybe it was just his own vomit still souring his throat, but Andy thought he detected the reek of bile, too, and other biological odors. This made him question exactly what the gray stuff was made of. He recorded these thoughts into his notes app after he stood up again. He got a few more close-up shots of the different fibers before stepping back so he wouldn't look like he had been disturbing the scene when the officer showed up. Officer Jennings was far and away his favorite proudy cop, so he was glad to see her when she slid deftly down the slope. She had grown up in Prouty and cared deeply about the community. The other three cops had all moved in from bigger cities, and Andy suspected the scenic area had little to do with why they had chosen quiet little Prouty instead. Andy had been pulled over no less than six times since moving to Prouty. Five times had been for negligible speeding violations. The most egregious offense had been 35 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour zone. Each time he had been issued a verbal warning after brief interrogations by local officers who wanted to know why an unemployed journalist had singled out their town. 
Andy had begrudgingly entertained and endured the first four, wanting to make friends with the officers and not start an adversarial relationship with the police department so soon. The fifth time, he had threatened to file a harassment complaint with the attorney general. This had been the hollowest of threats, but the moronic swing-shift officer immediately shut up and told him to be on his way. Andy had thought his troubles were over when, for a sixth time, reds and blues lit up his rear view. He rolled down his window, prepared to give a speech about constitutional rights and abuse of authority, when an officer he had never seen before approached his car. This had been Officer Jennings, and she had very politely told him his taillight was out. Andy had thanked her and divulged his previous experiences with her colleagues. Jennings had laughed apologetically, then complained about her backwards department for almost ten minutes straight. She promised Andy a warning for the taillight if he agreed to secrecy about her complaints, and thus there, did Andy dare call it friendship, was formed. This isn't some kind of hoax, is it, Laxton? Officer Jennings demanded in the present. Then, with a pleading grin, added, Please, for the love of God, tell me it's a hoax. No, ma'am, Andy said. He held a hand up to assist her with the last few steps of her descent, but she ignored it. Never know with you internet journalists, she said with a wink. Andy knew she was joking, but the comment stung nevertheless. Jennings lifted her baseball cap emblazoned with the Proudy PD badge and scratched her stubbly shaved head. She shaved her head so no one could pull her hair if she got into a fight. Andy had never asked her about her hairstyle, but she had explained it to him twice. He figured she was probably used to having to justify it with the folks around town, who all assumed she was a lesbian. She wasn't. Something else she had felt the unprompted need to clarify. But to Andy, who had spent most of his life in places current with the times, her buzzed head didn't seem unordinary in the slightest. He mostly felt bad that Jennings felt she had to justify such a harmless personal choice. Small towns, man. You know what the hell this is? Officer Jennings asked Andy. She stood beside him and put her hands on her hips, surveying the gray mass. Smells like puke. You didn't puke, did you? Andy blushed. Jennings rolled her eyes. Good lord. But it was way over there. What you're smelling is this thing. And what's inside it? The skeleton? She asked. Andy nodded. Are you sure it's human? Jennings squatted beside the crack in the object, wrinkling her nose as she donned blue medical gloves. I mean, I'm no expert, but yeah, I'm sure. Officer Jennings tugged a few of the interwoven fibers aside and grabbed the edges of the slit. She pulled it apart and peered in. Ah, damn it, it's pitch black in there. Grab my light for me? Jennings nodded downward, drawing Andy's attention to the fancy flashlight protruding from her utility belt. That's all right, use my phone, Andy said holding the device out to her. Jennings rolled her eyes and, exasperated, said, Please just do what I ask. You're lucky I don't roll out the yellow tape and make you stand behind it. Andy was glad Jennings insisted on him using her flashlight, if glad could be used loosely. Her light made his look like a child's toy, maybe a glow stick. It illuminated every shallow bump in the cocoon's interior and painted details he had missed entirely. Fibers coated in this sticky resin dangled from the roof and walls of the thing, giving the interior the appearance of a peach with the pit ripped out. The bones inside were accompanied by two rings, a silver band, and one encrusted with tiny inset diamonds all the way around. There were also two earrings with what Andy guessed were fake diamonds encased in silver teardrops. A smartwatch or fitness tracker 
lay beside one skeletal hand, and a belt buckle lay between the femurs. Also inside were the bright orange rubber soles of a pair of running shoes. These items were, Andy assumed, made from materials which were not desired by the creature or creatures who had left the body in the trees. Jennings let the crack snap shut. Well, a suspicious death means we should probably get the sheriff involved, she said, clearly irritated at the idea. How come? Isn't this your jurisdiction? Andy asked. I think you know it's a little more complex than that. You know what kind of resources my department has. Plus, nobody from Prouty's been reported missing. I checked when I heard your call come in. It's got to be somebody from the greater area. Who knows? Could be... Jennings stopped short. She took her eyes off the cocoon coffin thing and directed them at Andy. Hold on. I probably shouldn't be talking to you, should I, Jerno? You can talk to me, Andy said, unconvincingly. Okay, listen. Jennings took a step toward him. I know you found this, and I bet you already took pictures. I'm sure breaking this story would do wonders for you, but I think it would be wise to hold off. We don't want to go starting a panic. All due respect, officer, but don't you think the people of Prouty deserve to know there's something out here that could do that to them? Andy gestured to the hideous mass behind Jennings. Okay, pretend I'm not a cop right now, Jennings said. She spun her Prouty PD embossed cap around. Andy laughed, but he had to admit she really did not look like a cop anymore. She looked like a rapper dressed up as an officer for a music video. I'm just a girl who lives here, all right? I'll admit, off the record that this is strange, but there could be a rational explanation. I'm asking you to give me, give us, time to find that explanation. If you start going off about this online, you'll get all the tinfoil hat types out here investigating, and all that'll do is screw up the real investigation. Andy thought for a moment, then gave the most diplomatic answer he could think of. I can't promise that. I'm sorry, but I swear it's not because... Jennings flipped her hat back around symbolically. Then get back. Now, this is a crime scene. She pointed up the slope. Andy wanted to protest, considered it, then backed away with his hands up. He could hear Jennings speaking into her radio, probably talking to Rose Barnum, the dispatcher who Andy knew also volunteered at the library on weekends. He walked back up the path to his home. He usually had good rapport with Jennings. It had surprised him how quickly she flipped. She's only doing what she thinks is best. She's trying to protect her town. That's her job, he thought. He knew from the hard look in her eyes he might as well consider himself iced out of the investigation. She was afraid of how close he had already gotten to it. He could see it in her eyes, hear it in her voice. But why? He made a note to stop at the library sometime to see if he could convince Rose the dispatcher to spill anything. She liked to talk. In the meantime, he would make use of the one advantage he had. The crime scene he had just been ejected from was right behind his house, and he would be able to observe the investigation well enough from there. The team at the base of the hill expanded slowly while Andy watched through binoculars from the rear window of his bedroom. Chief Bradley joined Officer Jennings first. He was probably upset about being dragged out of his office until he saw the alien object for himself. Next, an off-duty officer showed up, one of the other two who made up Rowdy's thin blue line. Andy guessed Rose called him on her personal phone to tell him about the crazy thing while it was still fresh. Or maybe he had been listening to the police radio in his downtime. He didn't look like the type who had a lot going on in his life outside of work. 
The trio stood around talking while Jennings wrote notes. They all three took pictures. Andy wondered if it made Jennings squirm to know her second-rate colleagues might leak pictures of the ugly object to the press. It certainly made Andy uncomfortable. He had been leaning towards giving the department time to conduct at least part of their investigation before publishing his pictures, but under the pressure of beating those losers to the punch, he wasn't so sure he could wait. Two St. Joseph County Police Department officers showed up after about half an hour. One of them blocked Andy's driveway with his Ford Explorer, but Andy wasn't planning on going anywhere anyway. He had researched the area's law enforcement shortly after moving to Prouty and learned that St. Joseph PD was headed by the county sheriff. If Prouty ever needed additional resources beyond the scope of their small operation, St. Joseph would provide. Amen. Andy heard bits and pieces of a brief but heated discussion minutes after the two SJCPD officers shuffled down the slope. He guessed it was an argument over jurisdiction. He hoped Jennings and Bradley had won out because Andy didn't have any solid connections with the county police yet. A DNR official from the Wildlife Division showed up an hour after the sheriff. When he went down, the law enforcement teams backed off and let him examine the object. Everyone, including Andy, anticipated some sort of resolution, or at least an explanation. When the DNR official, a bearded guy wearing boxy Oakley sunglasses, stepped away and shook his head, the crowd of cops slouched in unison. Even from his distance, Andy could read that DNR guy's subtle message. He had no idea what the hell the giant thing was. His work complete, the DNR guy marched back up the slope. He looked back often at the object, internally puzzling over what it could possibly be. Andy intercepted him as the man walked past Andy's side door on his way back to his truck. Sir, I'm sure you're curious, but I shouldn't talk about what's going on down there. Police investigation, you know how it is, the man said. Andy tried his best to seem unintrusive. He said, Ah, no worries, I understand. I just, I was actually the one who found that thing down there. Or, I guess it found me. Almost fell right on my head. Andy hid his smile as the DNR guy's face showed genuine interest, even though almost a quarter of it was hidden behind his sunglasses. No kidding. One of the cops said it fell out of the trees. So, was it like suspended up there or lodged in the... I don't know, Andy interrupted. I didn't look up until I heard it falling. I'm Andy, by the way. Andy Laxton. Rick, the DNR guy said. They shook hands. Andy asked, Any idea what could have made it? Nope, Rick said, matter-of-factly. I just told them down there I think it's safe to rule out a human killer, though. Andy hadn't once considered that possibility. They really think a person could have made that thing? Andy asked. Rick uttered a brief chuckle. <laughs> well, I think they want to believe someone could have. I mean, the alternative, this is what I told them, is that there's something creeping around out here. Something we've maybe never seen before. Now that's a scary prospect for anybody, but especially in a small town like this. You know what that thing kind of reminded me of, though? What's that? Andy asked, suppressing his eagerness, trying to seem casual. It's about 7,000 times bigger than the biggest one I've seen, but it sure looks like an owl pellet. Man, you've got me talking now even after I said I shouldn't. An owl pellet? Andy repeated. Yeah, ever seen one? Rick asked. Not since grade school. We dissected them. Mine had chipmunk bones inside it. Sounds about right. When owls eat a critter, like a chipmunk, they'll swallow them pretty much whole. 
They digest what they can and regurgitate the rest in pellet form. I don't know, it's just... The bits of fabric kind of reminded me of the fur that's usually all twisted around an owl pellet. Add that to the bones inside and... Well... Except, the skeletons inside owl pellets are usually pretty well deconstructed. It's kind of creepy how that one's whole. Rick pointed a thumb over his shoulder at the slope behind him. So, how big of an owl would we be talking here? Andy asked playfully. Rick smiled and uttered another one of those short laughs. Oh boy, to make a pellet that big, you'd be talking at least the size of a private plane, I'd venture. I mean, you try to imagine a bird big enough to swallow a person whole. Andy shrugged. When you put it that way, it doesn't seem too likely. Rick smiled. Not so much. Hey, you have a good day. Andy, was it? Andy nodded. You too, and good luck. Officer Jennings told the chief she was going to ask the witness some more questions and climbed up the slope to Andy's house. He was waiting in the backyard for her with a mug of hot coffee. The cool October air felt nice in short stints, but started to bite if you were out as long as Jennings had been. She thanked him for the coffee and held it in both hands close to her chest. Sorry I sent you away like that, she said. This is all so weird. It's got me off balance, I guess. You're welcome to come in and warm up. Andy offered. Jennings either shook her head or shivered. Either way, she made no move toward the house. Officially, I'm up here to ask you more about that thing down there, how it fell on you and all that. Almost fell on me, Andy corrected. Unofficially, I'm here to beg you not to take this story public yet. I can't legally stop you, trust me, I asked the chief. But Andy? She looked down the slope, but her eyes were glazed and distant. Andy could see her thoughts expanding outward. When she looked back at him, he saw something in her eyes he hadn't expected. Fear. She said, We really don't know what the hell that thing is. The DNR guy said it looks like an... Owl pellet, I know. Andy finished. Really paints a picture, huh? He also said we could probably rule out a human, and I think he's right. I don't know how someone could do that, but... Until we know for sure... Can I give you my two cents? Andy interrupted. As long as you only give it to me and not the whole world. I told you, I can't promise that. Andy repeated the truth which had ended their previous interaction. But Jennings seemed different now. Her hard outer shell had dissolved. She was holding herself together well, but Andy sensed she was pretty freaked out. He said, I don't think there's any chance a human being put that thing up in the trees. I mean, even if the person inside was already just a skeleton... How much do you think that thing weighs? A hundred pounds? How could someone have gotten something that big all the way up there? Jennings didn't answer, just stared into the treetops. After a minute, she said, You'll do what you have to, I know that. Just please remember there are real people who live here and will be affected by this. I've known these people since I was born. I probably even knew whoever's in that thing down there. Stuff like this can destroy small communities like mine. Just... Try to be careful, okay? Andy liked the way Jennings called the community hers. That sense of ownership is probably what made her the only dependable cop in town. I can't promise not to share the story, but I want to tell you something you and I have in common, Andy said. Oh, do tell. Jennings rolled her eyes. We both serve a code of ethics, right? Our professions might use different tactics, but we both want to protect people. I don't see your bulletproof vest, Jerno. No, I would never equate the risks you take to what I do. I may be conceited, but I'm no narcissist. 
I'm just saying, we both want to keep everyone safe. Jennings took a step closer, pivoting so she stood shoulder to shoulder with Andy. She leaned toward his ear. Difference is, one of us can lock the other up if she thinks he's doing a bad job. She stepped back, having made her point. We could keep doing this all day, but I'm a little chilly, so... Andy hugged himself and turned his upper torso toward the door, one of the many hallmark signs of a Midwest goodbye. Just be smart, Laxton, and watch your back. With that, she started walking away. Andy called after her. Is that a threat, officer? She only turned partway around and didn't stop walking as she replied. That nasty thing fell pretty damn close to your house, didn't it? I want to take a break from those morning walks. Then she was gone. Andy knew Jennings. He had yet to learn her first name had only been playing around, but what she said struck a chord. He had been so wrapped up in the potential story that he hadn't considered the possible risk to himself. He, himself, was one of the proudy residents he had been voicing so much concern for. And not only that, he had to sleep at ground zero every night. A rush of fearful excitement came over him. He went inside not only to escape the chill, but also to put a roof above his head. From his living room, Andy saw a DNR pickup drive up with a flatbed trailer attached. Andy chuckled and thought, you better have a big tarp. He imagined with sardonic glee how Officer Jennings would react to having the pellet thing paraded through town. The truck stopped just behind the illegally parked SJCPD vehicle, and Rick, the DNR official he had spoken with earlier, climbed out. Sure enough, he went to the truck's bed and retrieved a black folded tarp. He looked around as if making sure no one was watching him, and briskly walked to the slope. He disappeared over the edge. Twenty minutes later, Chief Gilbert appeared at the top of the slope, turned, and called down, You're almost there, just a few more feet. A team comprised of Officer Jennings, the off-duty cop whose name Andy couldn't recall, and the two SJCPD officers brought the tarp over the edge of the slope with the enormous pellet resting on top of it. It wiggled like a jello mold. Rick brought up the rear, It took all of them to hoist and drag the thing onto the trailer. Once it was in position, they folded the sides of the tarp over it, almost hiding the whole thing. Rick strapped it down. After exchanging a few words with Chief Gilbert, he climbed into his cab and started the truck. Andy watched the parade of police vehicles led by Rick disappear up the road. He wondered where they would take it. Where could they possibly store something like that out of sight? And what would they do if more started turning up.